This episode is being sponsored by First Response Pregnancy. They are fervently committed to supporting, sharing, and empowering all pregnancy journeys and providing accurate information, especially to those struggling with infertility, loss of a baby, and maternal health inequities. This episode of Unexpecting is brought to you by our friends at Carrot Fertility, the global platform for fertility healthcare and family forming support. Go to carrotfertility.com slash unexpecting to learn more. I think it was the first time where I, I actually got tired, physically tired, emotionally tired, just tired of this BS and something just started changing in my thinking. Hi, everyone. It's Olympic figure skater and broadcaster Tara Lipinski, and you're listening to Unexpecting. I started this podcast with my husband and now co-host Todd to bear it all about my untold five-year and often excruciating journey with infertility. The goal is simple, to take this taboo subject and demystify it, to normalize these important conversations, and hopefully to find answers. Nothing is off limits, and over the course of the series, we'll unpack my fertility mystery, the trauma we've endured, and hopefully offer those struggling alongside of us some valuable insight. So laugh and cry with us as we ride this unimaginable fertility roller coaster, hopefully toward a brighter day. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And if you know someone struggling with fertility, tell them about this podcast. Because our path might be different, but it doesn't mean we're lost. Hi guys, I'm Tara Lipinski. And this is Todd Kapastashi. And you're listening to the 11th episode of Unexpecting. Episode 11. Real quick, I just want to point out, you you haven't noticed so far, you were making fun that the the last time we did our episode, I was in sweats. Do you notice I'm in a dress? Yeah, you're like in a prom dress now. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to dress up for you. Yeah, we're like going to the <laughs> Academy Awards or something tonight. And I kind of dressed down a little bit. Yeah, look, we're just not on the same page today. We don't coordinate at no, all. No, Johnny and I coordinate for every single show yeah. that we do. I go back and forth on that. I even thought about that as we were like starting to plan for this. I was like, oh, would it be cute if I like had a pocket square that matched Johnny it? would be very upset. Also, it's just not. It's that's not, not you. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you married me. No frills. <laughs> and that's why Johnny's my work husband. <laughs> <laughs> so in the last episode of Unexpecting, um, we talked about your fourth miscarriage. And I think that last episode is probably the most difficult Weirdly, maybe it wasn't the most difficult time, but it was the most difficult episode for you to get through, I think. Just the emotionality of thinking it was going to work, this weird Vegas weekend, and then having that miscarriage was like really difficult. I think what's interesting is doing this podcast, I'm actually realizing moments that I thought maybe weren't as bad as they were, or I healed from in therapy. And as you know, I'm I've done and am doing a lot of therapy and I I feel like I've come so far and I look back on a lot of these moments in our story and I'm like, oh, that doesn't bother me. But then when we actually sit down and have the conversation, I realized that first miscarriage really upset me. And, you know, it was, I was crying. And then the other ones sort of were that numb feeling that I remember. But what really surprised me was last episode where, I mean, I was really upset. Kind of, I was in a funk for the next day or two after we filmed that. And I think it just really brought me back to that moment where it was, you know, rock bottom for me. And then just the series of of events that happened that built it up, built it up. This was it. And we had all our hopes on this. And then Deja vu, it was just so devastating and a huge turning point in our journey. Well, if listeners remember two episodes ago, I believe, we kind of talked briefly about surrogacy and people starting to push that on you and some of the reluctance for both of us, I think, in that moment to really take that option seriously. If you can just remind listeners what your reasoning was at that time of why you were reluctant. I think there was a few reasons why I was reluctant. One is that I know that we have a really great doctor that from the very start, you know, I'm not shy to ask. I mean, I wasn't like just going in and pretending not to see these failures. Every single one I would I would say to her afterwards, like Dr. Beck, tell me, is there a problem? Is there a problem with Todd's sperm? Is there a problem with 
with my eggs or our embryos or my uterus or whatever it was. I was just so um, direct and she's very direct. And she always promised me, she said, Tara, I will always tell you, like, if I see a problem, if I think that you need a different path, I will let you know. So that was always, and I don't know how you feel, that was sort of the driving force for me to continue going on this journey because I really wanted to try. I was so happy every time she said, no, like, I don't see any problems. I'm not sure why this is happening, but there's no evidence of why you can't carry a pregnancy. So that's just hard to wrap your mind around and be like, okay, cool. I'm just going to give up and, you know, go to surrogacy. And I think then the second thing was, we keep talking about it, but our story was just so many twists and turns like a movie that it felt like you found one answer and that was going to be the the change. And that was going to be what brought us success. So why not try it? It's like, oh, we, we found a septum. Oh, what am I going to say? Nah, let's do surrogacy. You know, no, that could have been the answer. And then we would have had this triumphant result. So I think up until this point, that was my mindset. Why would we jump to surrogacy if we were just hitting bad luck and if the next one was going to work because we found the problem. Yeah. And I think what's really important to bring up, which you did is the second point you made, which was, you know, are we really going to like have this clean slate, have people tell us, do you remove the septum and it's all going to be great. Try one time and there's a 65% success rate and we fail. And then it's like, well, all right, four and a half years in, we tried once and, you know, surrogate time. Like that felt a little weird, um, you know, but I, having said that, I think both of us sort of felt like, gosh, like all these miscarriages are exactly the same. So it's like probably not nature at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, I felt confident at this point. This was like a breaking point for me. You know, it there there was so much evidence on the table and the way that these miscarriages happened and they were all very similar. Now I will say this last one was the strongest pregnancy and it and it differed in many ways, which is one of those like, messes with your mind a little bit. And then, you know, you, you're talking to all your doctors afterwards. And, you know, Dr. Najat, my endosurgeon was like, look, I think I need to do another surgery. Like when I was in there, there was so much endo still, you know, we need to get that out. That was near, you know, that's, that's near your uterus. There's inflammation. And, you know, I think there were still things being thrown around of like, we could try to fix something and maybe the next one would work. But I think there was just something that cemented my thinking after this last miscarriage of what my gut was telling me, that there was something we were missing, that these miscarriages can't be so similar every single time. Even though this last one was just a little different, but still, it's not different enough. And it was the whole needle in the haystack and we didn't find it. We couldn't find the fucking needle. Like that's what I felt. And maybe most of all, it was the first time that you know how we talk about I stopped thinking about my body and stopped thinking about what I was putting myself through. I think it was the first time where I I actually got tired. Physically tired, emotionally tired, just tired of this BS and something just started changing in my thinking. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious your take on this cuz the way I felt I think around this time was like it would be the definition of stupidity to just like keep trying it. Because like, look, like these things, you can say they're three-day-old embryos, but it's potential life. And you just keep dropping these things into your body knowing we might get the same outcome. Not only just strategically felt dumb to like, okay, we, we clearly there's a problem. And maybe, you know, it's funny, you talk about the needle in the haystack, like maybe it's needles, maybe it's an aggregation right. of like a few things at play that we just couldn't kind of piece together to really know, but. And I think it's, I think a lot of times unexplained fertility is just that. It's not just one answer, it's a few answers and how they, they all work together and also luck. <laughs> yeah, and I just think it would have been irresponsible and dumb to just like, oh, let's try it again. Oh, let's try it again. Oh, same day. Like no heartbeat scan, no heartbeat scan, no heartbeat scan. Let's just keep dumping these embryos that we were again running out of, even though we had done so many retrievals, retrievals. we were starting to yeah. like, we had lost all our female embryos. Yeah, just like hot potatoes. It just <laughs> yeah. like, it was to the point where I just felt like, A, there's a certain point 
we can't do any more retrievals financially, physically, all of the things. And we're getting older, time is ticking. And then I think my mindset just started to change dramatically here. And I think- Well, that's what I was going to say is that two episodes ago, we were both hesitant in a certain sense about surrogacy. And I talked about some of the stigmas and how, you know, in that moment, I wasn't feeling those stigmas, but at the beginning of our journey, I was. And then we had had this conversation about slowly talking about even entertaining it as an idea. But now it almost just seemed the conversation was like way different. Like It was way different. And I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, you were on the surrogacy talk track a lot sooner than I was. I don't know, maybe a year before you tell me, I feel like you started dropping comments here and there about it. And it was like a hard no for me at that point. Like I re just remember like looking at you on the couch and being like, like close, close the conversation. Like we're not there yet. You know, yeah. I really thought we had an answer coming. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It was even hard for me because it's like, I think everyone in life does this, but not just obviously fertility, but with every decision we make, it's like, okay, you get 80 good years on the planet. Like, what are you willing to sacrifice to get something you want? And it almost felt like we were in this zone for the last like couple years where I was starting to wonder like, okay, like our life is like, you know, revolving around fertility. It's all we kind of talk about and you're miserable and doing all these appointments. And that's five, that's five years. That's, I don't know, terrible at math, but what fraction of my life in your life, right. like, was this? And right. is it worth like, you like being pregnant for nine right. months? Like to me, you know, and again, I, I didn't probably speak up enough about this because I, I knew you wanted this so badly and right. you had your reasons. But yeah, I mean, part of it for me was, yeah, like what what is it about being pregnant that you cannot let go of that we're kind of continuing down this road and sacrificing a lot? But I, I do, sitting here today, I do, especially even going through this podcast, I understand it more. But in the moment, I certainly wasn't understanding fully. Right. I think it's interesting to go back through the progression of how I thought about surrogacy from the start. In the beginning, it was just like, wait, surrogacy? Like, why would I not carry my own baby? And that's not for me. I'm not, I'm going to be like everyone else and become pregnant. Like, that's part of life. And it just seems so foreign and something I couldn't understand. And I was like, wait, another woman's going to carry my baby? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and then you've, you fast forward a little bit to that first miscarriage and it's like anything when you lose something, then you want it twice as, as much. And then I would sort of romanticize what it would be like to be pregnant. And yes, I think being pregnant and giving birth is a magical experience, but I think in my mind, it just became just this obsession because I wasn't able to do it. So I wanted it that much more. And then over the years, I still wanted it and I wasn't giving up on this dream and I didn't want someone to tell me, like you said, to stop because it felt like quitting at that point. Um, and, you know, we talked about this in the podcast. People would talk about surrogacy, people that went through similar journeys and, and was like, please, I listen, it, it, once you get to this point, it's, it, you're, it's not what you think. And I'd be like, no, 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 I'm not there. I'm not there. And then the third miscarriage happened and it was the first time that I started to get this like tired feeling where I was like, is this really magical? Is this pregnancy thing all it's cracked up to be? Like, I don't know. And this is what I romanticized about. And it was the first time that these little thoughts just started creeping in where I didn't tell you, but I was like, I don't know what I thought about pregnancy and what I thought it would mean to me in my life. Maybe it doesn't. And then the fourth miscarriage really sealed the deal. Not only the weeks and months after what I went through and the physical fatigue and the emotional fatigue, but the feeling I had during pregnancy was by far the worst feelings of my life. So this was something I was fighting for and I couldn't wrap my mind around that anymore. And it, it was the first time that I just realized that maybe my ego was wrapped up in this a little bit of like, I want to have the outcome I want to have. And I want to work hard for that outcome. But like, I want to be able to say I did this, but do I really want to do it? And I think if I was honest with myself in, in these moments, even probably a year before, I don't know. I, I don't know why 
it felt so important. Well, it's funny, like hearing you talk and tell me if this is like an accurate metaphor, it's kind of silly, but it's like, think of like a teeter totter. Uh And like when we started our journey, like there's an elephant on one side of it, weighing it down and like a mouse on the other side. And the elephant represents like your want to like have a baby and (laughs) to carry a baby. And then throughout our journey, all these failures are like more mice hopping on the other side to the point where it was just like the the scale started tipping in the other direction where it's like, there's so much failure and trauma on one side that the, this elephant that we thought I would never give this dream up just like gets flipped off. That's like a perfect analogy. I was never going to get the pregnancy that I envisioned in my head. I was never going to get the pregnancy that, you know, a lot of women get walk into it naive, have a smooth pregnancy. And not all women have smooth pregnancies, but there are a lot of women that just get pregnant and have this experience and it's magical and it's amazing. And it's all the things that you dream of and that I dreamt of for myself, but that was never going to happen after all the trauma we went through. Like I was never going to like I said, look at a stick and think, oh my God, I'm pregnant. I'm happy. I'm never- Yeah, but also during the pregnancy, you would have been anxious and a wreck the whole time right. thinking something was going to go wrong. Well, of course. And, and, and people talk a lot about, you know, being pregnant after loss. Pregnancy after loss is a real thing. And the PTSD that you struggle with to get through a pregnancy, this is not rainbows and sunshine and bliss. These women are- you know, I follow them on Instagram, like barely getting by day to day, having anxiety, sometimes having to go on antidepressants to get through a pregnancy. So I just started to realize these scans, these appointments, the waiting, everything associated with pregnancy, like unfortunately our journey, it took away any type of magic that I could have had in a pregnancy. So what was I fighting for? I, I, that's what I finally realized. I was fighting for nine anxious months where I wasn't going to have this magical experience that I thought I was going to have. It just wasn't feasible anymore. So I think with all of that being said, big picture, when we're in the actual moment of the aftermath of this fourth miscarriage and we kind of know that we need to move on to a surrogate as an option. Like that is something we need to do. I think I was very conflicted. And in my mind, there was one part of me that's like, oh my goodness, get the surrogacy agency on the phone right now. Like we can't lose another embryo. We need to to find a surrogate. It could take a year. And then there was another part of my mind that was still in the same cycle of oh, wait, Dr. Najat said that maybe I still have endo and that could be an issue. And wait, is there, should I go do immune testing? What else should I do just to check that there's nothing just laying there as the answer that we're going to miss after five long years? So I think for me, it was a very confusing and conflicting time in my head. And it wasn't just like, oh, we've given up and we're moving to surrogacy and I'm never going to get pregnant again, or even think about that. And so you never really shut the door on that. I didn't completely shut the door on it, but now, you know, looking back, I think I knew, I knew that we were taking this step towards surrogacy and that I wasn't the number one priority of that journey anymore. Finding a surrogate was, and this was just this thing that bubbled underneath me that maybe there was still a little hope that something could happen. You hear all those stories of IVF where you get a surrogate or you move on to the next step and then, you know, you get pregnant as well. And there was probably moments where I thought, oh my goodness, can you imagine if we almost had twins that together? That sounds like something though that you would have said that you would hate if someone said that to you. <laughs> like our <laughs> previous conversation. Oh, Tara, you'll get a surrogate and then you'll get pregnant. Right, because that just doesn't happen. But you know what? I wanted to be that one in a million that maybe it did. And I think, you know, talking to Dr. Beck, you know, she, because our our situation and our quote unquote condition of whatever unexplained infertility, you know, issue we had, it wasn't so black or white. And I think when we talked to Dr. Beck, she kind of backed up our plan with that of, yes, let's move forward with a surrogate. And if you want, we can continue to try to figure out what to do with you next. 
And I think that's just this gray area that I was living in right after this fourth miscarriage. So, you know, how restaurants have what they call soft launches. Yeah. I want to say that this was a surrogacy soft launch because it was more than that. Obviously, you, you know, had still had that itch and, you know, want to find out what our problem was and potentially get pregnant. But we were kind of transitioning towards this, the surrogacy plan and definitely finding a surrogate because yes. it takes a while and we didn't want to, you know, I think that's a big thing too, probably with your decision making is like, and I bet that's a, a trick you played in your brain was, well, surrogate might take a year to find or eight months. And maybe in that time we'll like find our issue. And maybe I still can get pregnant, even though that was probably unrealistic. Yes, 100%. I think that was in the back of my mind. So there really wasn't any point where I had to mourn this next step. I wasn't mourning moving on to surrogacy because in my mind, it almost became like my next priority. And you know how I love to have something to focus on. And it was like, okay, Tara, you're on the back burner. Maybe you need endosurgery. Who knows? It could take a year to get a surrogate. And that's like number one on your checklist. Like we have to do the surrogate. And for some reason that didn't bother me. Like, and maybe you're right. Maybe it's because in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, I'm still going to get pregnant. So that's going to soften the blow of moving on to surrogacy. But I wasn't even upset about it. I think you actually struggled more with the initial phases of surrogacy than I did because I was like, yeah, let's get a surrogate. I was on the phone every day. I was almost, you know, I started getting nervous because I was like, oh my God, it's going to take so long and how do we figure this out? So I think for me, it was actually a really easy transition. A, hating being pregnant all the times that I'd been pregnant, realizing all the joy was never going to be there for me anyway. And then B, the fear of, we need a surrogate. We need a surrogate fast because we also need to know if this embryo that we're going to put inside of her is going to work. Because then we have even bigger problems. Well, that's a weird thing too. We haven't even talked about yet, which we should have. Is that yeah? It's almost like we're we're talking about this transition to surrogacy as if it's like a sure thing. As if we still don't have this issue of like, well, this, these embryos have stopped working six, seven weeks into all these pregnancies. So what's to say that a surrogate's going to solve that? That was my biggest fear. And I don't know if you remember that. That was like, once we then moved on to the the surrogacy, you know, mission, I just would go to bed at night and I stopped worrying about what's our problem? What mystery do we need to solve? Am I going to have a miscarriage? And it more, you know, my nightmares then focused on, oh my goodness, like we're going to get a surrogate. We're going to put an embryo in the surrogate, and it's going to do the same thing in the same way that it did in me. And then we're really done. Then we really don't know what to do next. Like there's no answers at that point. So you talked about moving on to that mission. What, how did we start that kind of surrogacy mission? So I reached out to surrogacy agencies and, you know, it's, it's like anything in IVF. It's a process. You have to get on the phone and then you have to do these calls and then they have to explain everything to you. Then you have to get, then they start sending, you know, applications and bios of surrogates. And then um, if you match with someone, then you get on a, on a Zoom call and you go through that process and there's legal and it just takes forever. Yeah, and I remember the first kind of call we had with a surrogacy agency and just showing the ignorance that I think both of us actually had is I remember her asking like, well, you know, so do you guys have a preference for, you know, if your surrogate's in California or, you know, you know, many of our surrogates are not, you know, are all over the country. And I, I remember thinking like, wait, what? Like, I thought like going into that meeting, like we a hundred percent would have a surrogate in LA. We'd have coffee with her and meet her and we'd see her all the time when she's pregnant. And you know, I, I was, I was basically educated on the fact that there's not thousands and thousands and thousands of surrogates in every state. There's, you know, there's many, I'm sure, but essentially like, it's hard to find one maybe that's in your area. And it's hard to match. What I realized was like, oh, I thought there's just going to be these, all these surrogates there and you match with one and then you, you jump right into a transfer and there's medical clearance, you know, Obviously, your doctor, our doctor, Dr. Beck, had to approve these surrogates and put them through medical testing. And if any stat was off, then, oh, back to square one. 
Yeah. And I think too, the thing that we both struggled with, probably you more than me, but me too, honestly, was I think a lot of the surrogacy agencies, when they were explaining all this to us and we were getting bios and all, all these things, like some of these bios had like questionnaires that were like the surrogate would be asked, like, how much communication do you want with your like, you know, family? And they'd be like, well, like it'll go through the surrogacy agency. And I don't know, like once a week, like it, it was very, everything is sort of mapped out. And when you read that, it's sort of like, oh, wow, this person might be carrying my child. And they're like saying, I, there's like an intermediary that I need to talk to before I talk to them and all these rules. And it all felt, you know, it's hard because I don't want to like surrogacy is amazing, I'm sure. And just like, just the idea of it is beautiful mm-hmm. that people who can't have their own right. child, carry their own child, like someone else does it for them. And it is a beautiful thing. But early on, I was like kind of scared a little bit of that process of just feeling like, oh, wow, this like child's growing in someone in another state. I can't talk to her. Um, that was like hard. At no, first, and I, I and I felt that from you. And I think it's like back to your original what you just said a few minutes ago about how I looked at surrogacy, like for some reason, I'm the one that's more of a control freak. I'm the one that all of these things would have really bothered me. And I am thankful that when I went through this process, it really didn't. I just felt like I needed to get from point A to point B as my main goal. But also I think, like you said, in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe we'll get pregnant. Maybe we'll figure out our problem. And this isn't, you know, the end all be all for us. But let me just go through the process of it. And I do remember though, like some of these applications, you know, first off, I I had a few friends that used surrogacy and, you know, I would hear stories of like, oh, we used you know, an intermediary, as you mentioned, like the the surrogacy agency would speak to the intended parents. And then if the intended parents had a question, they'd go to the agency and then the agency would go to the surrogate and then the surrogate would give the agency the answer. And then it was like this game of telephone where it's not like you're having direct contact. And we should just put that out there right now that that's only, you know, some cases, every different surrogacy match is different. It could be from one end of the scale to the other. So I was definitely frightened by that because I was like, oh, I'm going to need a lot more (laughs) information than that. And I really don't want to go through some middleman to get it and wait hours. What also would have messed up, not that I shouldn't say messed up. There's reasons obviously to have intermediaries and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're obvious, but like, I think what a messed up situation, unfortunately, for people going through IVF who already have <laughs> lost all control of their journey, like do all these things mm-hmm. during the IVF process to gain back control. And then if they have to go sort of the surrogacy route, they even give up more control where this baby is like yeah. growing in another a human state. being in another <laughs> state, which, which you can't even completely lose some, some of the surrogates, you can't even get all, you know, it's not even like you're going to text. I remember there was a few bios where it would be like, I'm open to communication. I think I could email maybe once or twice, you know, a week with an update. You know, there would be sort of varying degrees. Which again is fine. It's totally fine. Not for you though. (laughs) Not for Tara. Um, You know, so it definitely was interesting when you're getting these bios. And then it's interesting because you like someone or you think you're going to like feel like this is a potential match and you kind of talk to your doctor and you send all the records over and there's just so many different markers that the doctor looks for. And, you know, I love that because they're trying to protect those precious embryos and they want to try to find the best surrogate that can carry this baby to a live birth. And you don't want to lose more embryos in a surrogate and then be even more confused. So there are pretty, and my doctor, Dr. Beck, was very strict with passing that initial medical testing, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. So that was like our initial kind of foray into investigating how to get a surrogate and to try to start the process. We'll obviously talk a lot more about kind of that process later, but I just want to kind of transition to this, not so much a two-pronged approach to this or surrogacy, but then, you know, you're also in the back of your head, maybe wanting to still figure out a way to carry or what's our, what's our issue? Because we are still... I wanted an answer. Well, no, to be fair too, it's not only just like you caring, it's also like, well, like we just said, like, is this going to work in the surrogate even? Right. So it's like, uh, and and to that point, and I think we should explain this adequately to listeners, we actually decided 
to do another retrieval. Um, just explain why. Well, I think to exactly what you just said, I mean, there was a real fear in me. I mean, when you start losing as as many embryos as we have, I mean, we lost, what was it, six, seven embryos? And, you know, they're not that easy to get. <laughs> um you really start to fixate on that. And I think that's why it was so easy for me to say yes after this fourth miscarriage, we need a surrogate ASAP because there was there was an immediate moment as if like an elevator closed in front of my eyes. Like there was no way. And I think like a maternal instinct kicked in in me where I am not going to lose another embryo in my body before a surrogate takes one and I love proves- I love Tara's- <laughs> metaphors. Can you explain what the elevator closing yeah. means? Okay, so, so the doors close. What is it? What floor are you going to? So, what does this have okay. to do with anything? Okay. So this is, so this is what. She also <laughs> says them with like a big smile on her face. Like, oh, this metaphor is sick. It's like an elevator closing. So it's like, you know what it is? It's like you are going down to the lobby and then the doors open yeah. and you have an opportunity to walk through there again. Right. And in my mind. To go into the lobby. Yeah, to okay. go into the lobby. And in that lobby is another embryo that you're going to toss inside your body. But I stay in the elevator, Todd. I stay back and I watch those doors close shut. But why and- did you even go down to the lobby <laughs> in the first place? <laughs> well, I was on you an should elevator. should have just been in the room with room service. <laughs> no, I was in the elevator. <laughs> and the doors closed in front of me. And it was just like the chapter closed where I, I as a hopeful mother-to-be was not going to waste another precious Todd and Tara embryo on myself. It was like, I almost, it's sad. I almost had such anger for my body that I was like, no, like you are not going inside of me and I am not going to do this to one more embryo. And then the weird psychology of it all. Yes, we're going to do that in the surrogate first, but okay, like maybe I can get pregnant later on. Yeah, there's just, it was confusing. There were a lot of things at play, I think, with this. And it probably does sound like, oh, another, like doing another retrieval before putting it in. But like, look at what we, it's like, we said that five episodes ago, like, why are they doing another retrieval? And then like a bunch of embryos later, it's like, well, that's why. why? But I think a couple other things, honestly, again, we've said this before, but you're 40. It's not that it's not going to be, if we realize we're out of our, whatever we had left at that point, if we run out of those, cause it doesn't work in the right. surrogate, you try again and we're right. out, then you might be 43. So and then we may have no choice. And yeah. this is another thing. People think surrogate, they, I think it's what they think about IVF. Oh, IVF is a guarantee. Oh, surrogacy. This is, this is what they do for a living. They don't, they don't lose embryos but they have the same odds as anyone else going in, 65% chance. I had a friend who had a great surrogate, her very first transfer, chemical pregnancy, lost an embryo. She had to do another retrieval and then the surrogate carried the second one. So it happened. So we were preparing ourselves for all of these different options. And also we're the people that had to prepare ourselves like this because everything that could go wrong went wrong for us. So why not? Yeah. And like you said, it was a psych, a little bit probably of a psychological relief for you. Like, okay, I'm going to commit kind of mostly to have a surrogate, but also I still want to be in control. I want to like do something to make sure our outcome it, it works. So like, let's bank another embryo. So right. I think that was part of it. And also a small part of it, I know, but still worth mentioning is like, we at that point were out of female embryos. So, yes. you know, you had the connection with what you talk about, like a rainbow baby and you you lost so many girls. And, you know, I think part of it was like, not only do we definitely have to do another yes. retrieval or should do another retrieval, but how great and sweet would it be if be we if could also a, get some girls yeah, in that? And in, in my mind, I was like, it's not happening. That's just not our luck. And I kind of laugh all the time because I say Todd makes all the boys, you know, we had a football team of boys and, and not that many girls. But I think for me, it was hard knowing the genders of these embryos, our first natural one, you know, not that we got to pick that one. It was a, it was a female. And then, you know, just how it goes, your better graded embryos they put in and we put in a lot of females and we kept losing them. And then I was like, okay, put in a boy because maybe that's not going to work. And we lost that little boy. And there was a part of me though, that was always sad because I, I was like, oh, maybe she's going to come, she's going to come back. Like she's going to be that rainbow baby for all these, you know, girls that we lost. And again, they're, you know, little embryos, but this is, 
you know, how you connect in these moments. And it's hard for me not to think that way. So there was a part of me going into this last retrieval, which we needed to do regardless, thinking how sweet would it be to get, you know, a little girl in the mix. But again, I remember I was like, there's no way you produce boys and we'll just be lucky if we get one more normal embryo, whatever it is, just to have another shot. So all that being said, I think we were, at least in our heads, and we were just telling ourselves this, but like this was the last retrieval, which actually is silly to even say, because if we would have gotten, well, not to spoil anything, but if, you know, it fails, like, would we have done another one? I don't know, because we felt like we did need to replenish these embryos, but maybe it was the really the last one. I mean, I, don't know. I truly think, like I said, I was getting tired. I was getting tired from the miscarriages. I had a really rough recovery from this miscarriage. My body was just like before it was sort of just always like bounced back, you know, in a few days, in a few weeks, it was ready to fight again. And I had just noticed it felt like I was breaking down and you can tell like when it's the end of the road. And I remember to gear up for this retrieval after this miscarriage was the hardest thing I had done on this journey. Um, And I was a little nervous because I was 40 now and, you know, Sometimes they say statistically, you know, the the amount of genetically normal embryos you get at 40 is a lot different than when you were 38. And I was really concerned going into this of what we were going to get. So I think I knew it was our last go of it. And I don't know if my body could have handled much more. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Most people who undergo fertility treatments have little to no insurance coverage. It is an area of healthcare that often goes overlooked. Because of the cost, many people think there is no realistic option for them to seek out IVF or preserve their fertility in hopes of building a family. Carrot Fertility is making a huge difference in this area. Carrot's mission is to make fertility healthcare affordable and accessible to all, regardless of age, sex, or income by working with companies to add fertility benefits to their offerings for employees. Carrot's comprehensive clinical program delivers industry-leading outcomes and cost savings for employers, while also supporting members and their families through this very meaningful time. I am so passionate about making fertility treatments available to everyone, so I'm proud to be aligned with a company that is making such a huge difference for so many people. Please visit carrotfertility.com slash unexpecting to learn more. Thanks for looking out for us, Carrot. First Response is fervently committed to supporting, sharing, and empowering all pregnancy journeys and provide accurate information, especially to those struggling with infertility, loss of a baby, and maternal health inequities. First Response knows that when testing for pregnancy, you want to be sure of your result. That's why they created Comfort Check, a pregnancy test kit that helps you test confidently and conveniently. The First Response Comfort Check Pregnancy Test Kit is a value pack containing eight total tests, three First Response Early Result Tests, and five First Response Pregnancy Test Strips, allowing women to test early and often for added reassurance. First Response's Early Result Test included in the Comfort Check Kit is their number one best-selling pregnancy test. It detects all major forms of the pregnancy hormone commonly found in urine and is over 99% accurate from the day of your expected period, with results ready to be read in just three minutes. The First Response Comfort Check Pregnancy Test Kit is available for purchase in-store and online. Be sure to pick one up today. The story of how Ritual came to be is quite amazing. Kat Schneider, who built this incredible company while pregnant, did so because she couldn't find a prenatal she trusted. For me, trust is key. Personally, I wanted to know that my body was getting the care and nutrients it needed, especially during such a meaningful time in my life. When I found the Essential for Women prenatal, I knew this was the prenatal for me. I felt confident and comfortable that I was nourishing my body and preparing it for pregnancy in the best way possible. This made the process of choosing a prenatal stress-free. The Essential for Women Prenatal is vegan, bioavailable, and clinically studied. And I love that their citrus or mint essence capsules are designed to be gentle on the stomach. So you can take them when you want, with or without food. That was a double win for me. 
So why settle for a multivitamin you're not 100% sure about? Ritual was literally built on trust. So you know it's the real deal. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com slash Tara to start Ritual or add Essential for Women Prenatal to your subscription today. So our last hurrah, our last retrieval was going to be in December of 2022. So actually fairly recently. Um, you, We got sort of lucky, I suppose, in the lead-ups to a lot of our retrievals where there wasn't a lot of complications, but mm-hmm. this one, actually, there were some. Yeah, my body was just telling me, like, you got one more try in you, and I'm like, I'm just, I'm giving up on you. You started the first <laughs> shot, and it was, like, screaming, like, yeah, yeah we were done with Never this. Done. No! Yeah, I almost felt like after the DNC and I was bleeding so much for so long, it was saying, like, no, you can't start again. So sorry. This is so stupid, and no one will find this funny but me and, like, Seinfeld fans, but there's a bit, a famous bit in Seinfeld where... Jerry dates someone and he and George like pretend to do this voice of what her belly button is saying. <laughs> I feel like that's your belly exact- button. Like, no, no, don't. no. <laughs> exactly. That was what was happening. And so when I went in for my first appointment to start the, and you know, I'm gearing myself up because I'm like, Terry, just got to do this. I'm exhausted, but you got to do this. And I'm gearing myself up. And that's another thing we we don't touch on really throughout this podcast, but after DNCs, the HCG drop. And I know that so many women know this pain. It's it's waiting and waiting for that HCG to, to go down. And it could take weeks, it could take months, and you can't start a cycle until it's down. And because my HCG was 100,000, it took so long for it to drop. So we waited, we waited, we waited. And then I went into the first appointment finally when my HCG was zero and we had the green light and she takes the wand out and she's like, oh, oh dear, we have like two very large cysts in your ovary. And I had never had a cyst before. And a lot of women, it's common, they have them. It can really sometimes, you know, complicate things in IVF. And I never had one and let alone two and they were huge And she's like, okay, come back in a week. And they were still there and they were releasing estrogen and come back in two weeks. And it just was like this long drawn out process with these cysts and then taking shots to try to suppress them. And the medication wasn't nothing. Again, it was the belly button. It was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the voice is actually, hello, la, la, la. It's like a happy belly button voice. Well, he was like, the happy belly button voice was saying, no, we're not doing it. And it was just so frustrating because I just wanted to to get into this. And so that delayed us. But you eventually got them drained. Two months, yeah. I came in a couple, like another week later and Dr. Beck's like, these guys are not budging. We are going to do a procedure. We'll, you know, put you under and we'll drain the cyst um, because they're not going to change and who knows how long they'll stay here. So I went through that procedure. Who knows what, what, that was probably like number 22, maybe that was like my 22nd time under anesthesia at this point. And um, we drained the cyst and, you know, it's always interesting too, like, I feel like Dr. Beck had so much material on me that I would like open up Instagram the next day. And I loved when she would, you know, I actually loved the little Easter eggs of knowing if it was me or my uterus or my follicles that she was posting. And there was this picture she showed on her Instagram of just like the this big container, these vials of this, like all the fluid that she drained. And she was kind of just showing like, oh my goodness, look how crazy this is. And I was like, yeah, This is the weird thing that doctors get off on. Like, look at this cyst fluid. Cyst fluid. (laughs) Look at how cool. But you know what? Because I'm so interested in fertility, I was like, oh, that's so cool. (laughs) Oh, the sad things that I get excited about. Yeah, you're so proud of your cyst fluid. Like, look at how how much fluid my cysts have. Yeah, look, there's like four big containers of them. So we go into the, our eighth and what we hope is our final retrieval. Yes. Your, as you mentioned, this would be now your 23rd time under anesthesia, which I don't know if it is a badge of courage or just a, you know, a benefit because you love doing it so much. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I, I'm going to be honest. It was a benefit. But the one other thing, the belly button guy, he came out <laughs> one more time right after the cysts were done. We started this, this retrieval and literally where everything's looking good. I get this call from Dr. Beck 
and it's an urgent call. And she's like, oh my goodness, just got your blood work back. Wasn't expecting this. It seems like you might be ovulating through this retrieval right now, which means like everything would be over. We'd have to just stop the retrieval, which is devastating. And this happens to women sometimes, but it's not that, again, it's a bit rare for that to happen. But she's like, go to the pharmacy, get your shot. We may need to do a double shot and to stop you from ovulating. But that, but that of course causes anxiety because if you oversuppress yourself, then it can mess up the rest of the cycle. So then I sat there and I was like, oh my God, either I'm going to ovulate through this and we're going to cancel the cycle or all the meds I took just kind of threw off the rest of the cycle. So again, it was the belly button guy kind of coming out and saying- Hello, Dr. Beck, (laughs) I'm back. (laughs) Exactly. So like how we ever got through this retrieval, I have no idea, but I did not ovulate and somehow- we got to retrieval day and I got my nice nap. Only Larry David is going to find this bit funny. <laughs> I love Larry David. If Larry David listened to our podcast, Larry David, I would die. We've talked about like kind of your weird group of celebrities who you would bum rush. Like I think Larry David is probably, I don't know if he's one, but he's probably one. We saw actually one of my top five we saw recently. Oh. Um he lives, I think, in our town. And remember we said Conan O'Brien? Oh, yeah. He yeah. was at a dinner and I couldn't stop yeah. staring at him. But Larry David, I mean, I loved Larry David. I feel like we share so many things. Well, he probably wrote that <laughs> belly button bit. So yeah. there you go. Um, so our eighth and final retrieval, hopefully. Um, what you go on, obviously, for the, the retrieval and we do the waiting game. And mm-hmm. what, just tell me the results of that retrieval. Well, we got... We got really lucky. And like I said, I was 40. So I was like, you know, I was 40 and a half. I was like, what are we going to get here? Because I think we sent out six. Right. For testing. We sent out six for testing. And we and had sent out seven before and gotten and zero. zero. So. Yeah. So we were never. Yeah. We're never that hopeful. <laughs> no. And it was Christmas and we were in Montana and I was just waiting for that portal message. And do you remember we were like getting ready to go out in the snow and I was like, Todd, it's here. And like, I, I wish there was like video of me. We have some video like opening a portal message. First off, I would like start pacing. You'd be like, stand still, stand still. And like, I couldn't. And like my hands would literally shake. And I was just like, you know, in this. I don't know, this awful state of anxiety. I always hated opening the portal in those moments. But we opened the portal and we got three genetically normal embryos, three of them. And and two girls. And yeah. Which was cool. And yeah. two girls, which was just crazy and a bonus. And it was the best Christmas gift I could have ever asked for. Yeah, I mean, I was, cry- I mean, crying, happy, 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 happy tears. So the Christmas in Montana could not have been ruined by anything. It was Mm, the guys. only eventful thing that happened in Montana that year. So well, let's move on. What's the next topic here? No, no, no. So we are going to go back to this story. I lobbied before the podcast to leave this story no, out. But. No, we cannot. And <laughs> <laughs> okay. So essentially we are just playing outside with your whole family. It's We're there for Christmas. It's really fun. Your cousins. And, yeah. Um, and mom and dad and the dogs and Sully's there with us. And Tara, it's it's hard. It's like we're we live in LA where, you know, there's not a lot of space. There's no obviously weather. So like when Sullivan goes to a place that's cool with snow, it's like it feels nice. And there's a bunch of acres where we were staying. And so- right. Can I preface something here? First off, just to get to know Sullivan, you know a lot about Dublin. Sullivan is his brother. He is he is the best dog ever, but he's not well trained. He's not a dog that you say come and he comes. Well, those dogs are aloof. Flat coated retrievers. They they're go, awesome, but they're aloof. They go anywhere they want and they're just little troublemakers, which I love. So I just want to preface this that when we got there, Todd's like, let him have fun, let him off the leash. Like, and I would, and I was like, no, Todd, like we're in the middle of nowhere. He's going to run into the forest and get lost. He'd find his way back. Yeah. And this is what he would say to me. And we, we had this conversation every day and Sullivan would get too far and I'd be like, Todd, go get him. And he'd be like, he's fine. He's fine. Let like the dog roam. Right. Yeah. And so. By the fourth day, I was like, okay, I am not going to be this naggy wife that does this every time. I'm just going to bite my tongue 
and feel sick to my stomach every time I watch this dog like jet away from us in the snow into the middle of nowhere. So I did that for a few days and I was like, okay, Tara, see, like maybe I'm I'm too helicoptery with Sullivan. Different parenting styles, you know? Right. Mine was the right one. But anyway, we go sledding. We're all sledding in the backyard and it's fun. And then Sullivan starts to like wander a little down the hill and I can see him. It's like down where like the end of the, the hill is and where the sledding stops. And then we walk, you know, walk back up the hill. And, and into sledding. the abyss of Montana wilderness. Yeah, I mean, just to, to paint a picture, it is just like <laughs> pine trees upon pine trees and just white snow right. for like a mile in each direction. Right. And it all looks the same. Yeah. So it's, you know, mm-hmm. not a place you want to get lost in. So anyway, he starts to wander off Sullivan and Tara's like, Todd, like Sullivan's down there. Like, go get him. And I, again, for the 90th time on this trip. Tara. he's fine. He's good. I got my eye on him. And then I always remember like the sled was falling and I was like, you were trying to give it to me. And I'm like, yell, I'm like, go get him. Go get, and you're like, oh my God, Tara, here's your sled. And I was like, go get him. So we lost him. (laughs) We, all of a sudden, Todd jets off. My whole family, we all look at each other and we're like, we don't see a brown dog. And so we all are on like the hunt. Like we are a search party for Sullivan. And I- Tara's melting down. I am, at this point, I am melting down. The snow is up to my knees. It's almost nightfall. We are like looking for this dog, searching for this dog. Todd, like, I don't even know. He went on like- a crazy sprint. I, I don't even know where he went. All you hear is Sully. There were seven or eight of us just, right, just searching. Just Sully, Sully. I'm like, it's the, the, the snow is so high. Like I have to take off like my snowsuit because I'm like, I can't move. I'm getting lost because it's all white and trees and I don't even know where I am. Well, I'm off on my own because I'm running towards like the road and essentially I'm horrified because I'm like getting a divorce. Like this is happening. We're not going to find this dog. Like I'm like, oh, I'm trying to, you know, pep talk myself. Maybe being a divorcee is not that bad. Like I'll survive. I'll never find anyone else like Tara, but I don't know. Like I, mean, I should be okay. I feel like I lost my shit at one point. I don't, I don't know if you heard it because it was kind of like a valley. But at one point it was, cr- I mean, I was crying at this point because I was like, he's gone and he's going to get eaten by a wolf. And I just was like, Todd, Find my fucking dog. <laughs> and I just remember yelling Well, there's that. crazy. The crazy thing is there were eight of us all searching, all screaming for him. We couldn't find him. I was like running. I ran like a few miles in like a huge circle. I don't circle know how you did it. Because I didn't want him to like hit the road somehow. Um, but the craziest thing is, so... Well, you tell the story. We eventually obviously found him like 10 steps from where he first disappeared at the bottom of the Like, hill. who knows? He just like, thank God it... My dad was about to go get the car and we were going to start to go down the roads. And my dad was like, I hear something. And then we like turned around and the poor little guy with- Sully, man. He was so scared and his tail was between his legs and he was just kind of shaking. And I think he got lost and didn't know how to get back. But oh my God, it was the best moment ever. Okay, so just to finish off this story- and I've said this about Tara. And one of my favorite things about her is how she's kind of easygoing with me. If I make an honest mistake, I take a wrong turn or I'm, you know, messing something up that is just an honest mistake and innocent that you get over it. But like Northman yeah. weren't happy. <laughs> this was like Northman times 10,000. Well, yeah, it was my baby. And essentially we're walking back to the house <laughs> after finding him. Like I am like beat red from like sprinting in knee high snow <laughs> and I have a, a bad back and I'm walking towards the house and there's a patch of ice and I slip and I basically go like feet <laughs> up, 10 feet off the ground, slam on the back of my back. And guys, I'm not kidding. Tara literally doesn't even look at me and just walks <laughs> right past me. <laughs> like I'm still on the ground, like cl- clutching my back and I hear the door slam in the house. I think I was waiting for a... I am so sorry. I will never disregard your feelings or worries about Sullivan ever again. We should have never let him well, off his I'm leash. I'm screwed with Sullivan because anytime I'm like, oh, he's fine. I like bite yeah. my tongue. Yeah. I have to like yeah. go do it. <laughs> yeah. So that was our, you know, we had some highs and lows on our Montana trip. So obviously after Christmas, we're really excited and pumped. We had a great eighth retrieval. We're starting to investigate surrogates to potentially put one of these embryos in. Um, But, you know, as we talked about, we just didn't know what our issue was still and if our embryo was going to work in a a surrogate. Um, So 
I know we've kind of beaten this with a dead horse, but this podcast is sort of like this mystery and uncovering, you know, what potentially are unexplained infertility and is. hopefully helping other people watching that may be on a similar journey. Yeah, exactly. So we've mentioned this a couple times offhand throughout the podcast, and I, maybe listeners have kind of picked up on this, but the one last real, I think, real test that we hadn't taken yet or kind of path we hadn't investigated was immune testing. Um, what is immunology and what is immune testing? So reproductive immunology is where they will test, you know, your blood and see how your immune system is going to react during implantation, during pregnancy. And it's interesting, reproductive immunology, I kept coming across it. I would see these posts of women just saying like, this was our answer. I had all these miscarriages and thank God I found this. But it wasn't something that was front and center, especially for us. And I think the more I now have learned about reproductive immunology is that some clinics will offer it the very first time that you have a miscarriage and they are big believers in it and they will send you to a specialized doctor because that's another thing. You need to really go to a specialized reproductive immunologist because they have to be able to read these blood tests and it is very in-depth and very complex. And our clinic really didn't mention immunology testing at all. And I tried to do it by myself with my regular, you know, general doctor when I came across it on Instagram a few years ago. But like I said, you get these results and he was like, what is this? I don't even know. And like, you have to test at certain times. It's just very specific. So I had just sort of given up on it. But yes, it's it's testing to see how your uterus and how that embryo and how your immune system is going to react to pregnancy. So two days, I think, basically right after we got the results of our eighth retrieval, th those great results in, in Montana, we decided to finally do immune testing. So when you met with the doctor um, while we were waiting for our results, he kind of prefaced what these results were potentially going to be, right? Right. So he prefaced what these results could look like. And there were two major areas that he was going to test for. And because I have endometriosis, I was at a higher risk for high natural killer cells, which of course could be treatable and could be one of the reasons why we were having trouble with pregnancy. And then he was going to test this other area, which was a little more dire. And I kind of remember him explaining it. It's really, since I'm not an immunologist, I don't want to get any of these terms wrong, but they were essentially testing your genetics. They took your blood, they took mine, and they were testing our genetics and our compatibility and our HLAs. I think it's fetal HLAC and something called CARE. And it's where your genetics and my genetics could be so incompatible that the way that my immune system reacts to it could really inhibit pregnancy or correct implantation. Right. It would almost treat whatever's you know, coming into your body as like a foreign body. As a foreign body. So after I talked to him, I kind of did some digging. I researched it. And unfortunately, I kind of was bummed because I was like, God, this kind of seems a little dire. Seems Not complicated. Good, yeah. Especially seems... the mismatch of if it were if it was going to be our DNA, it was, it's pretty dire. Right. And it just was like, oh, this seems like a very complicated journey. So after this phone call where the doctor explains how to interpret these results that we're going to be getting very soon, I guess, how are you feeling? Because I think for me, I was kind of like, I bet these results are just going to be inconclusive, like other, every other test we've taken in IVF. And I was obviously worried about, you know, the worst case scenario, but I figured it would just come back inconclusive. Yeah, I mean, I was a little worried. I mean, I have endometriosis. And when he was sort of saying that for part of the test, you know, I'm at a much higher risk um, because I have endometriosis, I was definitely thinking like, ooh, maybe these natural killer cells are going to be an issue. I'm going to have to go on all this, you know, treatment and medicine and it's going to be a long journey. I was a little concerned because of the endometriosis that that result would pop up positive. So a couple of days after that, I feel like we do get a call back from the doctor with our results. Um, 
what did he tell you? So he calls us and I think we were still on a high from our retrieval results, but I knew from the moment the call started and the tone of his voice that this was just not going to be a good news call. And he said, hey guys, so I have some difficult news for you. Remember when I was talking about the testing we would be doing, about the genetic compatibility between you and your husband's DNA and how that would impact pregnancy? Well, those results came back and you guys are severely mismatched. And then he said, and I believe this is why your pregnancies are not continuing. Thanks for listening to Unexpecting the Podcast. Please subscribe, leave a review, and follow Unexpecting Pod on Instagram for info about upcoming weekly episode releases. And hey, DM me on Instagram if you'd like to engage about fertility. I'd love to hear your story because our path might be different, but it doesn't mean we're lost. This episode has been sponsored by First Response Pregnancy. Their Comfort Check Pregnancy Kit and all other products are available for purchase in-store and online. This episode of Unexpecting was brought to you by our friends at Carrot Fertility, the global platform for fertility healthcare and family forming support. Go to carrotfertility.com slash unexpecting to learn more.